talking to me. I'm not sure I understand. <laughs> there we go. Um, today, um, I'm going to be concluding my series of messages on uh, Christian leadership. And uh, next week, we will begin a new series of messages on the uh, letters to the churches of Revelation. And uh, it's going to be an eight-part series of messages. And uh, <clears throat> we are coordinating um, all of our small group Bible studies uh, with this sermon series. And so uh, if you uh, are in a small group, we trust that uh, you'll purchase one of the study guides uh, for the small group leaders uh, guide and uh, that those of you who are in a small group will be able to do that. Uh, Sherilyn, where are these books available? Okay, the books are in the office right now, and small group leaders, if you would stop by the office and pick one up for everybody in your group, and then ask them if they would purchase one, and then you can then keep a record of that, and then give us a record of uh, how much um, you have collected from your small group. I, I'm sure our treasurers would be very grateful for that. So that'll start next week. But today I uh, conclude uh, a short three-part message on Christian leadership. Um, and uh, just to remind you that uh, the example of Hezekiah, who modeled uh, the process of influencing other people to trust the Lord and to trust in his promises, and then the model of Josiah, who uh, talked to us, who modeled leadership from a heart that overflows for love for God, that is on fire with the word of God, and that is totally captivated with the cross. Those are models. And as we look at narrative passages in the Old Testament, um, make sure that we understand that these are models from which we can draw principles. They're not prescriptive uh, commands for us, but uh, we can learn from them. And today we have another model of Christian leadership from which I think we can learn much, and, uh, and that is from the book of Philemon, as the Apostle Paul modeled how to lead and how he led Philemon in the circumstance that he was in. And so I want to talk with you today about uh, influencing people, uh, people that have uh, a good heart, uh, but um, who might not have to follow our lead. And I'll get into that in just a minute. Uh, but uh, I know we've already prayed. Just give me one more opportunity to pray and ask God to help me. So, Lord, I pray now as we look at another model that we would be true to your word and that you would give us wisdom to draw principles that can help us in our lives as we seek to influence people for your honor and for your glory. Please protect us from anything that's not from you. But whatever is from you, use it to help us become more like Christ and that we might build up the church to promote your gospel. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. There are some attempts to influence people, even from a good heart, that fall flat on their faces. And I'm sure each of us has a story of that. Some of them are our stories. 
Some of them are stories from churches, families, organizations. But today I'd like to share a story of an initiative that had a wonderful success outcome. An initiative that produced lots of fruit. And at the end I'm going to suggest that uh, it's very likely that it's fruit that lasts even unto our day today. And this is Paul's initiative with Philemon to provide us with ingredients and what I would consider principles of the how of leadership. So if you have your Bibles, um, please find the little book of Philemon. It's right after Titus and it's right before Hebrews. It's only a, a chapter, 25 verses long. And I'd like to read the entire book this morning just to set the context for us as we look at Paul's model of the how of Christian leadership. So, the book of Philemon. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our dear friend and fellow worker, also to Ephia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church that meets in your home, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank my God as I remember you in my prayers because I hear about your love for all his holy people and your faith in the Lord Jesus. I pray that your partnership with us in the faith may be effective in deepening your understanding of every good thing we share for the sake of Christ. Your love has given me great joy and encouragement because you, brother, have refreshed the hearts of the Lord's people. Therefore, although in Christ I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do, yet I prefer to appeal to you on the basis of love. It is as none other than Paul, an old man, and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus, that I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, who became my son while I was in chains. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he has become useful both to you and to me. Onesimus was a bondservant to Philemon, and he ran away. And he stole some things from Philemon's household and sold them. I don't know if they had pawn shops back then, but he sold the, the, the things that he uh, uh, stole from Philemon in order for him to get to Rome. And so Paul is appealing for Onesimus. And he says, I'm sending him, who is my very heart, back to you. So Onesimus came to Paul, and Paul says, no, wait a minute, you're a, you're a bondservant of Philemon, you got to go back. Verse 13, I would have liked to keep him with me so that he could take your place in helping me while I'm in chains for the gospel. But I did not want to do anything without your consent, so that any favor you would do not seem forced but would be voluntary. Perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a little while is that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. He's very dear to me, but even dearer to you, both as a fellow man and as a brother in the Lord. Tremendous change of status, isn't it, when you become a Christian? No longer slave or free. Verse 17, so if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. If 
he has done you any wrong or owes you anything, charge it to me. I, Paul, am writing this in my own hand. I'll pay it back. Not to mention that you owe me your very self. I do wish, brother, that I may have some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I ask. And one thing more. Prepare a guest room for me because I hope to be restored to you in answer to your prayers. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends you his greetings. As so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Verses 1 to 3, Paul wrote to Philemon and the church that met in his house. And uh, that immediately speaks of the close relationship between leaders and the church. I don't really think you can separate the two. There's always close association between anyone who's a Christian leader and the church of which they are a part. Philemon was converted through the ministry of Paul at a town called Colossae. The, the name of the book, Colossians, is the hometown of Philemon. And uh, Philemon was a very wealthy person, which had two benefits. One, he had a really big house, and so he could host a church in his house. And secondly, as was common in the Roman Empire with wealthy people, Philemon had servants or slaves, or the word here is bond servant. This this letter indicates that Onesimus, his slave, was a runaway. Perhaps while Paul was visiting with Philemon, Onesimus was overhearing Paul's messages and became really interested in the gospel. And so when Paul was arrested and taken to Rome, Onesimus got it in his head, well, I think I want to go to Rome and be with this guy, Paul. So he stole some stuff for Philemon, which was wrong. He ran away, which was wrong. But he ended up with Paul, and when he got to Paul, Paul shared the gospel with him, and Onesimus was gloriously saved, and he became a part of Paul's team while Paul was in chains in Rome. But, of course, Paul knew that as a runaway slave, he couldn't keep him there. He had to return him. And so he did, and it was Paul's legal duty to send him back. But it was also legal under Roman law for a slave owner to forgive offenses of their bond servants. And so that was legal under the Roman law, but biblically and Christian-wise, it was really the right thing to do. Even though he didn't have to, Paul was challenging him voluntarily to do it. And as he did, he reveals to us principles of Christian leadership. How do you lead someone to do something that they really don't have to do? That's the joy of leadership. Now, I do want to talk with you a little bit today about slavery in the New Testament because there's a lot of Uh, This is not specifically about this message, but it's the context of the message. And I want to take this opportunity just to share with you about what the New Testament says about slaves. Uh, Because that might be a stumbling block to us, thinking that, well, the New Testament seems to approve of slavery. And Paul never says anything specifically against it. What's the deal here? Let me suggest this to you. According to the culture of the Roman Empire, the practice of slavery or servanthood was the norm. Uh, Time Life's book, Classical Greece, 
says that the surrounding population of Athens, which is 315,000 people, of those 315,000 people, 155 of them were in some way enslaved to other people. Some historians estimate that one-half to three-fourths of the entire Roman Empire was then somehow obligated in a servant relationship to somebody else. Now, certainly what this comes to mind when we think of slavery is different from what was happening in the Roman Empire. Because in the Roman Empire, persons were designated as slaves in that they were obligated somehow to them, but they still maintained a great degree of their own self-determination. There were teachers, there were lawyers, there were physicians, there were accountants. Many people who were enslaved relationships to other people owned their own land. And it was permissible for a slave to be given his freedom. So they could get together and work out some type of an agreement. Uh, slaves could buy their freedom. Um, they could make some type of a payment that was worthy to both parties, and then they could be set free according to the Roman law. Now, what does this do with what we see in the Bible when we see about slavery? Is this the way that the Bible says slavery should be? I'd like to say that, in my opinion, in the Bible, slavery and any type of oppression to another person is always viewed negatively. It's always negative. Nowhere in the Bible is slavery ever modeled as a good thing. In fact, in Egypt, the nation of Israel were slaves, right? And so what happened? God rescued them out of slavery. Every time God judged Israel for disobeying him, what did he do? He put them under slavery from another nation. Slavery was always viewed negatively in the Bible. Sometimes, though, the law of God allowed for people to sell themselves into servitude for personal economic reasons. But that arrangement was not meant to be permanent. In the book of Exodus, chapter 21, here's what the Bible says. If you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve for six years, but on the seventh he shall go out as a free man without payment. It was never, ever intended to be a personal, a, a permanent situation. But if the servant says, man, I really like this family, I really appreciate my master. I'd like to commit myself to work with him for the rest of my life and raise my family in his household. This is what's called a bond servant. And I would suggest to you that this is what Onesimus was to Philemon, a bond servant. And of course, the Apostle Paul even calls himself a bond servant of Christ. It's a voluntary commitment that you make to another person and then you join their household. For us as Christians, we join the household of faith. But slavery, as has been modeled by the Americans and the British back in the 1800s, kidnapping is abhorrent to God. In fact, the penalty for such a crime in the Mosaic law was death. Look at what Exodus 21.16 says. Anyone who kidnaps another and either sells him or still has him when he is caught 
capital punishment. Kidnapping someone and enslaving them, capital punishment. And in the New Testament, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 to 11, Paul puts slave traders in the same category as those who kill their fathers or mothers, murderers, adulterers, perverts, and liars and perjurers. <laughs> so what we know as slavery was never, ever condoned in the Bible. In fact, it was always met with the sternest penalty. And so please understand, if, if you're ever wondering, what about this slavery thing? Why, why is it going on? Well, what, what we think of in sla- of slavery of our African people in America and British and other countries, that's nowhere close to what was going on in the Roman Empire. And even then in the Roman Empire, there was a certain amount of autonomy in the person who was in servitude with another person. Now, I just, that's just an excursus because I, I, I wanted you to know and have confidence in the New Testament uh, about freedom that we enjoy as people in Christ. So, Paul has this bondservant, Onesimus. Onesimus steals, runs away, goes to Paul, and Paul now is saying, you know what, Philemon, I want to appeal to you on behalf of my brother Onesimus. From Paul's example, the question is this. How do we influence people to trust God and to serve God when they're not required to? Philemon could have said, well, Paul, that's a nice idea, but I don't want to. I'm perfectly within my rights to keep this guy as my bondservant and even to discipline him and even to prosecute him for stealing from me. A lot of things in the church that are similar to that because in the church, aren't we all volunteers? Every one of us is a volunteer, aren't we? Leading volunteers means influencing to them to do something that they're not obligated to do. That's what it means to be a volunteer. Yet, Ministry needs to get done, and so it's totally appropriate for leaders to attempt to influence people to become volunteers. Just like the Apostle Paul was seeking to influence Philemon to voluntarily forgive Onesimus and to give him his freedom. So in this letter, Paul, I believe, was leading, and he was modeling leadership. And so I'd like to suggest three principles of leadership from the book of Philemon as Paul modeled. Now remember, this is an example. It's not prescriptive, it's descriptive, but I think it's a very faithful model for us and how we might learn from the Apostle Paul's example and how to influence people to follow Christ. How do we do it? Number one, cast vision that promotes the gospel. Wrap the issue at hand in the clothes of the gospel. A leader should say, what I'm asking will further the message of Jesus Christ. And by the way, if a Christian person is seeking to influence someone to do something that does not further the gospel, probably should not be asking. Wrap it in the vision of the gospel. Verses 5 and 6. Paul says to Philemon, I'm, I'm, I'm just 
asking you because we serve Jesus together. They shared a common love and faith toward Jesus. Philemon was a genuine love for believers and did effective ministry in his church, in his home, which is the heart of Paul. Here's a letter that reveals a fond relationship between two colleagues who shared ministry in the gospel. And then look at verses 10 and 11. This is fascinating. Paul proposes to Philemon that releasing Onesimus is useful for the gospel. See him say that? This is useful for the gospel as opposed to Onesimus being useless for the gospel as Philemon's slave. This is a play on words, a deliberate play on words. Because in the original language, Onesimus means useful. And so Paul is saying, listen, a fugitive slave is useless, no good for the ministry of the gospel, but if you forgive him and release him back to me, he will be useful, what? For the gospel. And so what he is doing is he is wrapping this initiative, this request, this attempt to influence him in the ministry of the gospel. Paul didn't say, do it for me. Paul said, do it for the gospel. Now, there are a lot of people that I really admire that I would be glad to serve. And I would go a long way in serving them. But there's a limit. You know, I'll I'll go just so far for another person. But the gospel, I think you'll agree with me. There are many of us, probably most of us, would give our lives for the gospel. And so if there's some way that we can seek to influence people, seek to lead people, and wrap the enterprise in the gospel, that is the strongest motivation for us to ask someone to volunteer in the local church. In our bulletin, we've listed a couple of opportunities for people to serve. One of them is in the nursery. One of them is as ushers. How do those two volunteer positions relate to the gospel? May I suggest that if a family comes and places their child in a nursery that is well-staffed, well-trained, which our nursery is, they can come up in church and be free to worship and learn about the gospel. And our nursery workers are furthering the gospel in our church. If you're an usher and you help someone with a smile on your face, feel welcome, even find a seat if our service is a little bit crowded, you are helping that person to feel comfortable and safe and welcome in an environment so they can understand and grow in the gospel. So I would suggest that the first thing that Paul models with Philemon is he casts a vision that promotes the gospel. Two, offer an invitation to a partnership. Paul says many times in this little letter, let's do this together. I'm already doing it. I'm all in. How about you joining me? We can get a lot done together. Look at verse 8. Paul says, I could command you. I could. I could require you. 
And in verse 14, Paul says, you know, you've got an opportunity to volunteer yourself and I don't want to get in the way of the blessing of you making your own decisions, so I'm not going to order you to. Instead, Paul appeals to Philemon as a beloved friend that he might make the decision of his own accord. Paul gives Philemon an invitation twice in verses 9 and 10. He asks. You see that? He asks. Rather than play the Apostle Paul card, he emphasizes child-father relationship. He emphasizes brother-brother relationship. He talks about his heart. An invitation is offered and can be accepted or rejected by a person's own free will. I think that's good leadership. If it's wrapped in the gospel and then the ask is made so that the volunteer can think about it but realize that, you know, I'm being asked to join something that's already happening. Paul is already in. Paul is all in. Partnership means that he is already immersed in the work himself. Look at verse 17. If you consider me your partner. If you want to join me in the work of the gospel. Partnership means that, boy, I'm all in. Will you want to join me? Isn't that what Jesus said to us? If you will deny yourself and pick up your cross and then... Follow me as I'm denying myself and I'm going to be bearing my own cross. You want to follow me? I'm all in. Follow me. Be my partner. And that's what the Apostle Paul says here. It's true that the Apostle Paul was in prison for the gospel. And that speaks volumes of his commitment to the cause. And he's got the scars on his back to prove it. Paul says, Philemon, I know this might cost you, but you know what? I've already demonstrated to you that I'm all in. Why don't you join me? Join the enterprise that's worth giving of yourself. Wrap the appeal in the gospel. Invite others to a partnership. And now the third principle um, bears a little bit of explanation. It's found in verse 21. And I'd like to suggest to you that verse 21 promotes an environment of empowerment. Now, what do I mean by empowerment? Uh, empowerment does not mean that you're empowered to do whatever you want. Empowerment in the context of Christian leadership means two things, and I'm going to suggest to you from verse 21 these two things. One, mutual accountability, and two, freedom to do more than is necessary. I think that's what empowerment is. Let's look at verse 21. Paul says, I'm confident of your obedience. Now, does that sound strange to you that Paul would say that? I thought Paul just said, I'm not going to command you to obedience. I'm not going to pull the Apostle Paul card. I'm not going to obligate you. And then he turns around and it's almost like spiritual whiplash. He says to Philemon, but I expect you to obey. Obey what? Well, I would suggest to you that the Apostle Paul is asking Philemon, to obey the law of Christ. I think he's expecting that the law of Christ is going to be the boundary, is going to be the commissioning of what he's expecting from Philemon. I think what he is saying is, 
I'm obligated to the law of Christ. And I'm going to follow him and I'm asking you to obey the law of Christ again. See, that's what the Bible says about the new covenant. The new covenant is written on our hearts, isn't it? The law is written on our hearts, Jeremiah 31 says. And then Ezekiel 26 tells us that then God gives us a brand new heart that has a new motivation to follow him. And then it says that he gives us his spirit who's going to enable us to do that. That's the new covenant, the brand new relationship. And then 1 John says, and my commandments are not burdensome. I love to follow Christ because it's in my heart. Paul loves God with a heart of obedience. And he calls Philemon to that same accountability. Philemon, I'm calling you to obey the law of Christ. Obey the law. What does the law of Christ say? I'm following it. I'm asking you to have that same accountability. But then look what he says in verse 21. The freedom to do more than is necessary. It's exactly what he says. I know that you will do even more than I ask. Now, at first glance, this could sound like manipulation, doesn't it? Doesn't it sound like the Apostle Paul is, you know, laying on the guilt trip, (laughs) you know, Sometimes we are good at doing that, aren't we? Just lay on the guilt trip, you know. Oh, I know you'll do even more than I ask you to. Would you really think that that's what the Apostle Paul would do? I mean, I would never lay that on the Apostle Paul to try to manipulate someone into sacrificing in servants. I think what the Apostle Paul here is doing is he's saying, and I want you to have the freedom to serve Christ with full devotion, to do even more than you have to. And one thing that indicates to me that this is exactly what the Apostle Paul is trying to say is to look at Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 to 23. When the Apostle Paul tells us about the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, you know, the nine fruit of the Spirit. Okay? Paul says, this is, this is our boundaries. This is our expectation. This is our accountability, the fruit of the Spirit. This is how we should live our lives. And then look what he says in verse 23. Against such things there is no law. What does Paul mean by that? He means, well, you can even do more. You can even do more than these things. You can love people, but you can love people abundantly. You can, you can have joy, but you can have joy abundantly. Do even more than you have to. See, I would suggest to you that that's the spirit of the Apostle Paul. And during cross-training, I'm going to look at another example where the Apostle Paul challenges us to do even more than we have to. You see, this... And then Paul demonstrates it. In verses 18 and 19, he says, Oh, and by the way, I'm going to do more than I have to, too. Because if Philemon stole anything from you, and he owes you any money... I'll pay it. I'll do it. I don't have to, but I want to. I want to do more than I need to because I'm empowered in my ministry as well. Now, that's my suggestion to you. I encourage you to think about it. Check me out. See if it fits with the spirit of the New Testament. I think it does. It really motivates me as I think about how to lead other people and try to influence them to serve Christ. 
So I would suggest that three elements that Paul models present the vision of the gospel, give an invitation to a partnership, and then empower people to serve. And I would summarize this by saying, effective Christian leadership as modeled by the Apostle Paul influences the heart to choose to serve God with full devotion. I think that's what Christian leadership does. I think that's three elements of the how. When the heart is captured, a person will go to the wall for a cause. When the church is filled with believers whose hearts are captivated by the gospel, who are excited to join in partnership with one another to promote the gospel, and who step out in faith because they feel empowered to serve the Lord with full devotion. That's an environment of joy. That's an environment of freedom. And that's what we want to foster in a local church. So, so now the question is, did this work? Did Paul's influence work with Onesimus? Well, there's nothing definitive that we know from the text of Scripture. Onesimus isn't mentioned any other times in the Bible. So we really don't know specifically if this worked. But church history has given us an indication that is more than a coincidence to me. We all know that the collection of Paul's works was circulated about the end of the century. And tradition tells us that the one who circulated, they call it the Pauline corpus, the Pauline letters, it was circulated by the Bishop of Ephesus. And there is some discussion among biblical scholars about why is this little letter to Philemon included with Romans and Colossians and Ephesians, these, these works of theology. What's this little letter to Philemon doing in this Pauline corpus? Do you know what the name of the bishop of Ephesus was? His name was Onesimus. Could it be that Philemon released Onesimus, sent him to the Apostle Paul, and Onesimus became a devoted member of Paul's ministry team? And could it be that Philemon did more than he had to and actually supported Onesimus to be the bishop of Ephesus. But what about this whole issue of slavery? Well, again, we don't know for certain from the text of Scripture, but again, church history tells us the history of Christian church, volume 2, Paul Akoff wrote a history, and he says that by the end of the third century, Christians by and large abandoned the practice of slavery within the Christian community. They just wouldn't do it anymore. I think it's more than coincidence that this little letter from Paul to Philemon about slavery was in what the Christians recognized as the inspired text of Scripture. And they read it and they thought, this slavery thing is not biblical. Let's just give it up. And see, I think this is why the Apostle Paul did not come out specifically and condemn slavery. Because he saw an opportunity to influence an entire world for Christ. As people would first of all do it themselves. And then out of the overflow of their own personal convictions, it overflowed into the greater body of Christ.
I think that's Christian leadership that lasts forever. So the question that I ask you to consider as a possible application of this series, The Heart of a Christian Leader, is this. Will you trust God for his strength and power and consider becoming a volunteer at our church? Lots of opportunities for us. Some of them are listed in the bulletin, but you can talk with Pastor Ian and myself and other, our elders and board members will be glad to feel you, try to get you connected to a place where you can serve. We will promise to advance our mission. We will promise to promote the gospel together as partners. And we will work as best as we can, learning as we grow, how to empower the teams that you serve with so that your ministry is a joy and you can flourish with a song in your heart as you serve. That's what we're trying to do. And please help us to fulfill this commission that we believe is given to us by the Lord. And Father, I thank you for the opportunity that we have to learn from examples of men that you have mightily used. Hezekiah, boy, how you used him at a very big crisis. Josiah, how he modeled devotion. Even when in the midst of knowing that he was going to be judged, he did it because he loved you out of the overflow of his heart. And the model of Paul, Lord, what a great leader. Help us, Lord, to think about these things, to be discerning, to figure out how to apply maybe these principles to our church. But, Lord, we pray that everything that we do, as Paul said, would bring honor and glory to you and lift up the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.